You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Monday, the 24th of October. It's brightening up here in TW11 after torrential rain overnight. That will be welcome rain to much of the jumps community as we reflect on an excellent weekend's action at Cheltenham. But you need your eyes everywhere at the moment. They've been watching the weather in Melbourne where there's been flash flooding. That'll be where I go later today. My first trip to Australia, never mind to the Melbourne Cup. Can't wait to be a part of the uh, VRC Melbourne Cup Carnival, uh, all leading up to the Cup uh, next Tuesday. I'll be talking to Channel 7's Jason Richardson later in the programme, who gives you a full rundown on the Cox Plate, won by Animo and James McDonald, our podcast guest from last week. And he also looks forward to the Cup itself, in which Europeans have three of the top four in the betting. Flight Line, the world's best racehorse. There is no contention about that statement. He is warming up for his Final hurrah. Is it going to be his final hurrah? Whatever in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Uh, he has arrived now at Keeneland from his base in Southern California. We'll be hearing from his trainer, John Sadler, and his assistant and work rider, Juan Leva, later in the program in the company of FanDuel TV and NBC's uh, Brittany Erton. And of course, you are all looking forward to the jump season in Britain as well, as is my guest, David Yates from the Daily Mirror. As I said, Dave, eyes everywhere at the moment. Yeah, there are marquee races all around the globe in the next couple of weeks. You've mentioned the Melbourne Cup, the Breeders' Cup, of course. But domestically, this is a period where we pass the baton, isn't it? This weekend, uh, we had the Verton Futurity Trophy at Doncaster, of course, a, a Group 1 race won impressively by Auguste Rodin. And we also had the showcase meeting at Cheltenham. So uh, for us Sunday correspondents, where do we go? Is it Cheltenham or Donkster? I went to Donkster uh, to watch the Aidan O'Brien cult. But yes, very much a sense of changeover. Domestically, of course, a week Saturday, we've got the November handicap, which rounds off the turf season. But this weekend, the Charlie Hall chase at Weatherby, and we might have a couple of Gold Cup hopes appearing in that race. It's not a race with a... Um, a, a fertile role of honour when it comes to the Cheltenham Gold Cup, but that could still change this year. I've been speaking to Lucinda Russell, who trains said Gold Cup aspirant Ahoy Senor, and I asked her whether he would indeed be taking up his engagement in the Charlie Hall at Weatherby this weekend. Yeah, that's his, That's going to be his first entry of the season. Um, obviously, we're going to be walking the track and getting anxious about it. I think everyone sort of agrees that he is probably better on good ground, but I want it to be safe ground. And I'm always very, very suspicious of the ground at this time of year. Uh, so hopefully they've had the rain that we've certainly had in Kinross. And um, yeah, if it is, then he'll be going to Weatherby. You mentioned the ground straight away, and it's interesting. I was looking through, reminding myself again about his form this morning, and I thought, actually, I just wonder whether he got stuck in the mud on that horrible day at Cheltenham when he was beaten, and indeed, um, and indeed at Kempton behind Brave Man's Game. And I don't know what you thought of that. Yeah, I think he's better on good ground, but um, he's a horse. You know, I, I still think the run at Cheltenham 
and probably at Kempton. He was still learning. I mean, he was still very much a novice um, doing his thing about jumping out to the right or jumping out to the left. And um, he, yeah, he was just working it all out, really. Um, I thought at Cheltenham, it was sort of a turning point from that race. I mean, it sounds mad to be talking about that, about, you know, top-class race. But he uh, made a few mistakes. Derek dropped him back and, and just got him back into a rhythm again. And I think, actually, that race really made a man of him. And I think that, that showed when we went off to Aintree. But, yeah, you're right. I do think he's a better horse on good ground, unlike the majority of our horses. But um, I would definitely just wait for safe ground. That's that's the sort of main thing. You might have already answered my question in part Weatherby's obviously flat left-handed he was brilliant at Newbury flat left-handed he's been brilliant at Aintree flat left-handed should I read anything into that or do you think that's just a set of circumstances and it's the way things played out um I'd say it's 75 percent um 75 percent correct 25 percent circumstances um I think I love the way that at Cheltenham you know he swung into the the home straight in fifth and yet finished second, a good second. So um, I, th- I think, you know, staying track, he does stay. That's that's one of his things. Um, I don't know. We, we've tried him right-handed. He does. He goes a little bit right. If you watch the race at Aintree again, you'll see that he actually changes legs probably six or seven strides out from a fence um, and puts himself onto the right leg. So I, d- I don't, you know, the right-handed leg. So I don't know whether... He would be better going right-handed, but um, bad luck. You know, Aintree's, Aintree's left-handed and Cheltenham's left-handed, and they're sort of the aims of our season. But are you are you in any way minded to think that the undulations of Cheltenham wouldn't suit him as well as the flatter tracks of, of Aintree, Newbury and, and that? Is that is that in your mind or, or not really? No, not really. I don't think it's the undulations, no. So I, he- think, I think what you said, that, you know, having the change in the weather and what I say about him being still quite novice I think they, they were the two reasons that he was I mean <laughs> he was beaten but he was still second he's still there he's still um he, he was second on the day have you and, and your team and, and skew have you have you thought a, a thought a way of picking through the campaign from here on in if, if all goes well and he runs a nice race on on Saturday have you thought about how many runs you might have how you might pick your way towards a gold cup Yes, I mean, I think the, you know, we've, we can only really look at the starting points. The starting point is either going to be Weatherby or if that didn't work out, then he'd, he'd wait another week and go down to Sandown. Um, so that that's our starting point. And then, I don't know, he'll probably have another two runs. There's, there's a chance that he'll go for the many clouds at, at Aintree uh, as a second race, but it just depends how, you know, how soon we can we can run him at the start of the season. So really, yeah, you're right. We'll probably have three runs and then look at Cheltenham uh, and then Aintree. Would the King George be out of the question? No, no, not out of the question. Um, he wasn't just quite right that day with, with Brave Man's game at Kempton. Um, and yeah, no, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be afraid to go back there. Now, you're unleashing a whole load of young talent this season as well. Um, Saturday, you, you ran a horse called Snake Roll, who won by 15 lengths at Kelso, beating what looked like a couple of quite nice horses. Could this be a really smart one, do you think? We absolutely love him. So he we bought him, we bought the winner of his point-to-point called The Legislator, and uh, Snake Roll was second in, in that race, and I think the fifth come out and won as well. So I think that's quite a good race. We've still got The Legislator to come out and to, to run. So... Um, 
we'd been working snake roll at home and actually was, he worked alongside a horse and you a few times and we knew that he was a really decent horse <laughs> actually there was other chairs left him in, in him and i said to fraser mcclung who's a very good friend please please buy a share in this horse because i think he's a super super horse so um delighted for him there's always a worry when you go you know, it doesn't matter how much they how well they work at home there's always that worry when you go to the races and there was a bit of anxiety beforehand but uh Derek was never in any anxious situation I think if you watch him in the race he just was holding on really um I think he's a lovely lovely horse we'll, we'll mind him we'll look after him keep him over hurdles this year but he is just a chaser I mean I like a horse in you he's a he's a very very big horse he's he's big he's got a good shoulder on him and uh, it's just really exciting to have another horse like that coming through at the same time as, you know, some of our, our good horses, Corrick Rambler, a horse in your, you know, we've, we're, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to the season. And where's Corrick Rambler going to kick off? Uh, he might go to the Charlie Parker, which is absolutely mad because it's only two mile four and he's a four miler really, but um, he might, we want to get a nice race back for him. So he might go there this weekend to, on Sunday to Carlisle. Carlisle, the, co- the co- Colin Parker, yeah? Probably look at the Coral Cup. The, the 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 Coral at Newbury after the Colin Parker at Carlisle, yeah? Yeah. Excellent. Looking forward to seeing him. Um, Lucinda, I know you've you got a busy morning. Uh, you've got three generations of Scudamore riding out today. I have, I have. Um, we've got Scoo obviously rides out every day here anyway. Tom's up because he's going on to air. And Margot, his daughter, is here. She's very, very, very keen. She was brilliant at the pony racing and uh i think she wants to train long term so she's being she's having a lot of not only does it she had the scudamore um uh the scudamore's telling her exactly how to behave but she's going to have me telling her how to train horses as well so poor girl she's here to ride out and uh it's going to be great no doubt there'll be pictures on social media later on um chris cook will have to write a new chapter to his book <laughs> that won't be any no hardship there then we enjoyed doing the book i think uh, lucinda thanks so much good luck at the weekend thank you okay that was lucinda russell trainer of ahoy senor there have been uh, four horses to have won both the charlie hall and the gold cup dave but not in the same season no that's right three of them won the charlie hall as reigning gold cup winners uh borough hill lad forgive and forget and see more business uh davy lad actually won the charlie hall in 75 and the gold cup in 77 so yes no horse has actually won the, the two races in the same season lots of unanswered questions for a hoist we know that he goes around aintree uh he's a grade one winner twice there once as a novice hurdler and of course when winning the mild may novices chase at uh at the home of the grand national uh last april I thought he underperformed in the uh, Brown Advisory Novices Chase at Cheltenham. That seemed a strange thing to say as he was beaten three and a half lengths in second behind Lon Preste. He didn't really look comfortable at the track that day. Lucinda Russell makes the point that um, it may have been the rain-softened ground. Remember that there was the deluge on top of uh, watered terrain in advance of that race. Um, it, It could also be as with many horses, that Cheltenham just isn't a hoist in yours course. The, the trainer said that he was learning on the job, essentially, uh, last year, and that she expected him to take a few step forwards in his second season over fences. If he does, then uh, clearly he's going to be a player in the Gold Cup. I was quite surprised a, a week or so ago, Nick, when I looked at odds comparison sites uh, about the Cheltenham Gold Cup and saw that a, a Hoy Senor was the third favourite at 8-1. to one. Um, I think that he's still got 
questions to answer after that run uh, at Cheltenham as a novice over fences last season. But it, it may well be, you know, wind the clock back to that thumping 31-length victory at Newbury uh, last November. And we've clearly got a horse who is a very special one when all the planets align. Let's talk about a, a very special horse, according to trainer Aidan O'Brien, but we've heard this before. Auguste Rodin, who gave the trainer his 11th victory in the Vertin Futurity on Saturday. He came up the stand side on ground that was soft and O'Brien only consented to run him right at the last minute. You wondered why there was ever any doubt. He absolutely bolted up, Dave. How excited are you by him? The trainers pulled out every every O'Brien-esque superlative from the trusty treasure trove. Yes, he he has. Um, on Saturday, he said that this was a horse to get a little bit excited about. Um, and then yesterday, he took a, a step forward from that to say he's probably the most exciting horse we've had at the moment. As you say, um, there is a small element of the boy who cried wolf, uh, because we, we've heard these things before uh, about the horses who come out of Ballydoll. It, it's not entirely surprising, is it? Because when you consider that uh, the breeding resources that feed uh, Ballydoyle at Coolmore. Of course, th there are exceptional cults or potentially exceptional cults uh, that come out every year. I thought that August Rodown, there were plenty of banana skins in the Verton Futurity on Saturday. There was the fact that the, the, the eight runners split into five towards the far side and then three towards the stand side, although Holloway Boy did his uh, bit to even things up by crossing from the far side to the stand side on the approach to the final furlong. There was also the rain softened ground, as you say, which meant that connections walked the track before giving August Rodin their blessing to take part. He drifted to nine to four favourite and if you looked at the list Wednesday or Thursday uh, when he was a shade of odds on you really would have wondered whether he still had a leg in each corner but he certainly did he strode three and a half lengths clear of Epictetus representing John and Thady Gosden and Frankie de Tory. Um, and it was an impressive win he's now the three to one favourite for the 2023 derby he was cut from around seven to one having been market leader on the morning of the race um, he will start off in the Guineas at Newmarket in the spring and then work forward uh, in the immediate aftermath at Doncaster. Uh, Aidan said that Auguste Rodin would stay 10 furlongs on his ear, which I think is the Irish equivalent of standing on his head, i.e. very easily, and that he didn't have any concerns about him staying a mile and a half. He's the first foal of Rhododendron, who of course won Group 1 races at 2, 3 and 4 uh, for Aidan O'Brien, and the late and much-missed uh, Japanese great Deep Impact. So we really do have much to look forward to next year with this horse. Talking of stallions who we miss, Roaring Lion had no chance to make the impact of Deep Impact, but he's made an impact even with one crop of horses. And he had a Group 1 winner with Dubai Mile at St. Clou on Saturday. Congratulations to Danny Muscat, a first Group 1 for him, Charlie and Mark Johnson and Ahmad Al-Sheikh. That horse will now be kept in training and in the ownership of Ahmad Al-Sheikh, who is now desperate to win a derby with the horse. There was a plan to sell him. No decision made, it seems, as yet as to whether he'll get on the plane to the Breeders' Cup, though that must be in some doubt. Holloway Boy now will not travel to the Breeders' Cup. The other Group 1 winner at St. Clou was proud and regal. Not a victory this time for Aidan O'Brien for the Coolmore team, but in that ownership for Donica O'Brien, the horse who'd finished second in the national stakes, giving jockey Gavin Ryan a first Group 1 success. Congratulations to him. 
So, as I said at the beginning of the show, the Melbourne Cup Carnival was officially launched today, right off the back of Animo's famous victory in the Cox Plate uh, at Mooney Valley at the weekend on on very soft ground, flooding in Victoria. It's not going to stop um, the the festivities of the next week. Uh, one iota, I wouldn't have thought, as we check in with uh, Channel Seven and Racing dot com's Jason Richardson, very much a a part of the of the of the Melbourne Cup Carnival. Jason. Um, uh, just first of all, let's reflect on the on the Cox Plate. I don't think anyone was surprised that Animo won, but what was the general feeling about the way in which he did it? It was brilliant stuff. Great to chat to you, uh, Nick, and also to your audience. And uh, well, the Mel- the Melbourne Victorian Spring Racing Carnival is just up and about, and it's fantastic. We've had a great Caulfield Cup Carnival. Cox Plate was awesome. Of course, we had all the drama the night before. We have a two-day carnival. We're on night into a day. So eight races on the Friday night into 10 races on Saturday for Cox Plate Day. We got into five races into Friday night with the big group one Manicato Stakes, a sprint race, wait for age over 1,200 metres. Lightning struck, so therefore the races were delayed, delayed, indefinitely delayed, and then suddenly... The stewards spoke to the bureau and said, listen, there's a window coming up of about 45 minutes. You could run your feature then and then you'll be clear and we'll cancel all other races. They made that decision. And as the horses were going through the tunnel at Mooney Valley to go out on the track for the Manicato, a crack of lightning uh, struck. And, uh, you know, poor, the poor filly like Coolangatta jumped in the air. All the sprinters were right on top of their toes. They turned straight around back in. The meeting was called off. We avoided a catastrophe, I think, and then that Group 1 race was put at the end of Cox Plate Day. So we had 11 races on the card, huge rain overnight. The track was uh, heavy eight in Australian terms. It was just, it'd be it'd be soft in uh, in British terms. El Bodegon was the uh, European Raider up against the best of Australia, and, uh, and that is uh, Animo. This uh, son of street boss out of Animato, who was a fantastic filly here in Australia. In fact, um, she won some group races in Australia and, and contested the Hollywood Oaks because her stablemate was Miss Finland, who was the best filly of her generation. So David Hayes trained Animato and thought, you know what, we can't beat the stablemate Miss Finland, so we'll take her overseas. And she ran in the Hollywood Oaks where she ran a placing. She came back and purchased by. Uh, Dali and Godolphin, and she is the dam of Animo, who had three Group 1s in a row victories going into the Cox Plate. He was $2.25 favourite. He's just got this beautiful style where he can just sit up on the speed and then that wonderful turn of foot accelerate away. He did that, and on Thunderstruck and El Bodegon, who had that French derby form, is a Group 1 winner in France, who last time he raced was in the great voltage behind Deauville Legend. Um, 2,400 metres, I think, sees him out. So El Bodigon better suited at the 2,000 metres. Flashed at him late, but Animo held on. And what is remarkable, that was actually his seventh career Group 1. So for Godolphin runners worldwide, he goes past Fantastic Light and Daylami as the most successful Group 1 horse in Godolphin worldwide history. And now I know Luca Kamani will be listening to this and rolling his eyes, oh, you bloody Australians have so many Group 1s. But the reality is he's an Aussie star and he's won his seventh mm. Group 1 and he's won the great one. I was asked, Richard, where, where I thought he would figure if he, if, if, say he got taken to a Breeders' Cup mile in sort of fantasy land, in racing fantasy land or something, or a Breeders' Cup yeah. turf or, or whatever, whichever way they wanted to go, how he'd run. And I said, 
I think he'd hold his own. I think he would hold his own. I'm not saying he'd win a big, a big international middle distance race, but I definitely think he'd hold his own. He's a, he's a, he's a pretty good horse. Yeah, I totally agree with that. In fact, we might get to see that. I think there's a chance that he might go to the Dubai Turf, 1700 mm. meters. Well, that that would give us a good indication. Yeah, that that's that's the if, if he could do that, like. Elvstrom and Sunline went over and, and competed in that. I mean, if he could do what Elvstrom did and win the Dubai Turf 1,700 metres, I mean, that's about the perfect spot for him. Um, it's early in the season for the Europeans. We don't get the, you know, the, we don't get a Bayed goes to uh, the Dubai Turf, but he would tackle some quality Group 1 performers. He'd start favourite in that, and uh, James Cummings would make sure that he's in the form of his life going there to race in front of uh, Sheikh Mohammed, his highness. So he, that may happen. I think you're right. I mean, you get a great indication of it because you know what level El Bodigon, you would you would consider El Bodigon 2,000 metres in Europe a legitimate Group 2 bordering on Group well, 1 performer? Is I, that fair I, to say? I, I think Animo's beaten them beaten them pointless, to be honest. I, I know the margin of victory is, is whatever it is, but I think he's valued for a good bit more than that. You know, on on a strict yeah, reading, on a strict reading of El, some of the best of El Bodigon's form, it still leaves him a couple of lengths behind, say, a horse like Vedani. But then Vedani's just about the best three-year-old in Europe, pound for pound. You know, yeah, I, as I say, I think he would, I think he would hold his own, and I think he'd be a fascinating challenger on the international stage. Let's talk about the the, the cup itself. It's a small group of internationals: Dover Legend, the German challenger Loft, without a fight for the Chrisfords. But you look at any markets, uh, Richo, they're three of the first four in the betting at the moment. Do they deserve to be? Absolutely, they deserve to be. I mean, Doville Legend, I think, is every bit as good as Cross Counter and Rekindling and El Paradiso that came out here. Um, two of them won. El Paradiso should have won. Um, three-year-olds, European three-year-olds tackling a cup. Now, the difference is all the weights have been raised one kilo this year. So on pure terms, to give you a, a proper a comparison, he's got 54 kilos plus the one kilo allowance to get it up to 55. Um, so that 54, comparing apples with apples, is three kilograms more than what Cross Counter had, what Il Paradiso um, had, So um, and rekindling. So the European three-year-olds are not treated as well as what they have been in the past. It's been an area that's been identified within the VRC and within Racing Victoria that, gee, I think they got in too lightly because they've been so fantastic every time they've arrived. So that's been addressed, but I don't think it will stop Dovial Legend. I think he's clearly the horse to beat. The great voltage run is fantastic. Um, you already get the form references around with El Bodigon, who's come here. I mean, even my Oberon, who's a you know, listed Group 3 miler, got to Australia and won the uh, Wait for Age Crystal Miler Group 2 level. Um, you know, Francesco Gardi, who your audience would know so well, you know, hacked up to win a Mooney Valley Cup. I, I think we've got a we've got a dearth in of Australian stayers at the moment. Most of them are European stayers who are now rehomed, and I just don't know if any of them are going well enough this year to really challenge Doville Legend. So I start to look amongst the Europeans, and I speak to some good judges in Europe, and they can't believe that Loft would be second favourite, that they think the second favourite should be uh, without a fight for the Crisfords. And then what do you do with Kimura and also Hu Yamal, who both in their, in their respective St. Ledgers were so disappointing. So... It's hard to have either of those, so I just keep coming back and again and again. 
to Doville Legend unless there's a lightly race type that will emerge right down at the bottom of the weights that might run on Saturday and get pitchforked into the race with sort of 50 kilos at the moment, I want to be with Doville Legend. For James Ferguson, and he'll be ridden by Karen McAvoy. I can't wait to get out there, Richo, uh, and and look forward to not only my first experience of the Melbourne Cup, but my first experience of, of Australia after 44 years on the planet. We can't wait to have you. I've, I've made sure everyone will be there to meet you when you get off the, uh, the plane. <laughs> there'll be appropriate banners, there'll be uh, pom-poms, there'll be balloons. The carnival was launched today by Australia's own Francesca Kamani, so we are ready <laughs> to welcome you. <laughs> Fra- Francesca Kumani is as Australian as Tom Marquand, and uh, and you should be... You should be, <laughs> you should be very proud to have them both. Looking forward to seeing you, Richo. Thanks so much. Buddy. Jason Richardson there. Um, Dave, I don't know if you if you know, I, I'm probably possibly not mentioned that I'm off to Australia this afternoon. I didn't know that. I, I've only been to Australia once. I thought it was a fantastic country. Melbourne is a, a hub of sport in Australia. Uh, whichever sport you follow, you, you'll find it there. Uh, only advice I'd say, you wouldn't see this in many Lonely Planet guides, but keep away from Punt Road. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I want to go back to a few of the talking points that emerged from the action over the weekend, Dave, and particularly the race course pricing and price of food and drinks on race courses, which not only Cheltenham, I don't want to victimise Cheltenham for this. I was I was uh, talk, spoken to by a couple of long established and charming race goers at Newbury on Friday. They They were saying similar things about price and service and 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 price of food and drinks and entrance fees and it, all, all all of that so i think it applies across the board there is a feeling that you know cu- punters and customers aren't getting value for money for whatever reason whether that's fair or unfair that 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 drumbeat is just getting louder and louder now dave is that a is that just a function of the time in which we live i, I just think that when you go to in inverted commas, events these days, be they sporting or, or or music events, you're going to pay a high premium for your food and drink. You know, the problem with some of these things, Nick, is that someone quotes the price of a pint or something. It, let's take the O2, for example. Um, I, I did a bit of research online i think it's 790 or 795 for a pint at the o2 now of course if you go to the dog and duck in greenwich you're not going to pay 795 for a pint of lager but equally you're unlikely to see brian adams performing there on a saturday night i i hate to take a shot at my own newspaper but there was a a a piece on the mirror website about um the O2 charging £4.40 for a bottle of Coke, which is £1.54 at Tesco's. We're not comparing like with like. Um, when you get to race courses and Cheltenham race courses, undeniably at the, the top of the mountain when it comes uh, to race courses in Britain, of course you're going to pay more. The complaint at Cheltenham on Saturday was that a pint of Guinness, yes, it was served in a paper cup, which was part of the um, the, the, the race courses drive uh, towards uh, being carbon neutral and using uh, renewables. Um, it was £7.50 and it had been seven quid at the festival. Now, it 
it doesn't take Carol Vorderman to work out that inflation is running at 10%. Therefore, if you put 10% on the old figure of seven quid, you could arrive at £7.70. So in that sense, Cheltenham might say, well, actually, we were doing you a favour. But I just think that people have to take uh, these things in context. Um, with regard to the quality of the, the food and the drink, I think that's an interesting and, and wider issue. Um, we know, I, I spoke to you a, a couple of weeks ago after I'd returned from Murano in northern Italy, having watched the Grand Premio there. And in front of the grandstand there was a, a big marquee uh, a gentleman known as the wine hunter in italy who's an italian man and no, is he the neil phillips is italian cousin yes indeed yes and he was presiding over this marquee principally of uh wines but also of of local food produce notably cheeses too uh, and it was a it was a big part of uh the sunday's uh meeting and you know, I've I saw um, I saw a, a tweet from Lydia talking about you know bringing local produce uh, onto the race course where uh, people can sample that, and I think that's a very good idea. It's something that uh, that, that race courses I think could could harness local producers and and uh, dovetail with, with them to 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 almost bring a, another aspect of of a visit to the races people might go there to watch the band these days or they might go there to to sample some of the local foods of course uh, that means that the race course would have to make money from uh, that too rather than uh, selling it themselves so there are some t's uh, to cross and some i's to dot in that sense but certainly that's a uh, something that that they could look at but in terms of the price well as i say if you go to the o2 if you go to wembley if you go to cheltenham race course you are going to pay uh, a high premium for your food and drink i don't like it no one likes it but it's just the way of the world yeah and dave i think your point about quality is a is a really interesting one on the face of it price comparisons and racing doesn't fare too badly you look at ticket prices for for example a, a junior to go to a decent seat at the fa cup final relative to the much talked about on social media price of a five to 18 year olds to go to the queen stand at the derby and the gulf is absolutely enormous racing doesn't stack up too badly at all and you mentioned against west end tickets concert tickets racing again it isn't bad value but it's a question of the quality of the offering you get when you're there both in terms of the quality and competitiveness of the racing first of all but also the the standard the general standard and thought given to what sort of food and drink you might be offered and how that perhaps is lacking the view is that even in even in tough times it's not that people mind paying it's what they're paying for that is crucial we, we can all look at prices in in an abstract fashion but it's it's a question of assessing the value but there is clearly a an intense focus on this subject at the moment and it'll certainly force racecourses to think a little harder about about what to give and and for how much and I certainly think and you mentioned the point that Lydia was raising on social media I do certainly think there's no excuse not to be able to to make tap water freely available for nothing at all times to all uh, to all customers uh, I'm sure these subjects will be raised a lot during the course of the season. It is not long until we see the world's best racehorse again. 
Breeders' Cup Saturday, first Saturday in November, Flightline will strut his stuff, hopefully majestically, at Keeneland, where he now is. Before he left, before he left to get on uh, the plane to central Kentucky from his base in Southern California, FanDuel TV and NBC's Brittany Ayrton uh, caught up with him and his connections. Here she is. So pleased to be joined by trainer John Sadler. Bright here early in the morning at Santa Anita as Flightline had his final major move here at Santa Anita before shipping to Kentucky. I thought I heard an audible wow from you. Just take me a little bit through his work today and what you thought of it. Um, very nice work today. Similar to his work from last week. Nice and steady with a you know nice steady gallop out. Um, we didn't want to do any more with him. We wanted to kind of replicate last week's work and we did that. So very happy. I think um, if you look at the energy past the wire, is kind of significant. He really has got great push going into the far turn, so very good. You had been quoted saying that things are consistently dull. Why is that a good thing? Well, because, you know, we, with him, we just want everything to stay the same. You know, he doesn't have to run faster. He doesn't have to run better. He's just got to be himself like he has been. So um, every routine kind of day we have is great for him. He's always been a sensational workhorse, but what sort of progression have you seen in him as of late? Well, just how well he relaxes early in the works. You know, he's going off 12, 12 and 1, 12 and 2 consistently. So um, just his ability to relax and be nice and controllable. And what's the plan moving towards Kentucky? When does he leave and what will he do once he gets there? Yeah, he'll leave tomorrow and he'll get into Keeneland tomorrow afternoon and um, he'll be on the track Monday or Tuesday. Um, depending on you know how all the travel goes, but um, he'll be there tomorrow afternoon. I see smiles from you. How is the anticipation of two weeks from today doing for you? Good. We're all set. I mean, you know, we've been working out ahead, you know, um, with the calendar, so we're essentially ahead of the calendar. We're just looking forward to getting over there and getting settled in. Juan Leva, assistant trainer to John Sadler, but also entrusted with the duty of working flight line in the morning. This was his final move prior to shipping to Kentucky. Just tell us what you felt underneath you today. The usual. I mean, he went around there easy as could be. Had a bigger gallop out today. Mm-hmm. Galloped all the way to the, you could say, a mile and an eighth. So it was, a, it was a strong work, but he did it well, and I was really happy the way he pulled up. What does the big gallop out signify to you? That he's fit. Mm-hmm. You know, that he's ready. I mean, he's going to run a mile and a quarter again, so we need to make sure that the fitness is there. And looking forward to his final breeze over the Kentucky surface at Keeneland, what would you be looking for out of him that day? I think it all depends on how he trains over that week, Mm -hmm. you know, how he's feeling, and uh, I just let him do whatever he feels good. I can't tell if you're keeping the emotions at bay. I know how impressed you are by him, uh, but just describe the feeling of being aboard him each time. He's just an amazing animal. I mean, I've told a lot of people, I've never sat on a horse like this, and I don't think there's anything more I can say. I mean, he's just super talented, and you know, as long as he stays sound, I think the sky's the limit for him. Uh, have we already seen this guy? If we haven't, that's pretty incredible, considering what he did in the TVG Pacific Classic. Juan, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All the people out here this morning to catch Flightline before he ships to Kentucky. Well, every month or so, every month, six weeks, we try and catch up with the progress of the Godolphin Flying Starters, the 
a specially selected group of graduates and those young people in the industry who are on the Godolphin Flying Start program, which runs over two years and takes them all around the world to get a huge breadth of experience in the horse racing industry. And it's produced some incredibly notable graduates, some of whom you hear on a fairly regular basis here. On this podcast, I'm thinking of Francis Graffard and Ed Sackville and so on. Uh, I'm joined today by David O'Farrell, who is part of the current cohort and is also part responsible for the excellent Flying Start podcast, more of which in a moment. But David, where are you and where are you headed? Thanks for having me on, Nick, first of all. Yeah, so we're in Ireland now. We've been here since August in Kilbangan Stud. And we're actually off to Newmarket on Friday for the second phase of our programme. So I guess for the last month, we've been obviously here in Ireland and we're at the Goffs Orby sale there, which is really good. We all got paired with a consigner or an agent. And then we've also finished off our UCD veterinary module. So I think everyone's a bit relieved to get that out over with. But um, it was very good, very enjoyable. And there were tough exams, but, you know, we all learned a lot about horses and reproduction and the anatomy. And then more recently, last week, we actually had a few visits to Goffs. We met with Henry Beebe, went to the Irish National Stud, met with Cahill Beale, the CEO there. And actually last Friday, we were down in Coolmore and had a brilliant chat about stallions with Mark Byrne and Tom Harris, who's actually another graduate of the Flying Star program. So it's been very busy, um, but we're all loving it. And our final big assignment this week is our Ireland conference on Thursday, where we're going to be talking about the Irish Turbot Industry Employee Awards and hopefully just bring a few fresh ideas to the table there and improve them going forward. So even though that's been a home game for you, you've you've learned plenty. It's it's Newmarket next. What to expect there? Yeah, so Newmarket on Friday. We're going to go. We'll spend some morning with different trainers around Newmarket. We'll head to the British Racing School. And we'll also spend some time at the Tattersall's December Mares and Fowl Sale. So we'll all go around with an agent. We actually get to pick our agent um, on this occasion. So I think everyone's just really looking forward to, you know, experiencing a change of scenery and learning about racing and breeding in the UK. Who have you picked? I haven't picked anyone yet, Nick. So, yeah, I'm still getting my feelers out. <laughs> okay. Tell me a little bit about the latest edition of the podcast, who's on it and where, where we can get it. Yeah, so it's available on all good podcast platforms. Um, so it was released last Friday. So first up, we have Mark Bird, who is the handicapper, Irish flat handicapper with the IHRB. And he's followed by Annie O'Rourke from Newmarket, who's one of our fellow trainees. And then we finish off by talking to Lockie Petica of Australia, and Charlie King of New Zealand, who are second-year colleagues currently based in Australia. So it actually is a Melbourne Cup theme to the podcast. So if you're interested in Melbourne Cup, looking for a few tips, definitely worth a listen. Thank you to David. Thank you to all my guests today. To another David to round off today's show with a winner. We're going to air for the 350 and the questioner, a son of Ask, who I think will have all the answers here. Uh, Two defeats thus far this season, but excuses both times. I think he'll get it right today. 350 race at air. Selection is number two, the questioner. Dave, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Brightening up a treat now here in TW11. Looking forward to heading down to Melbourne for the first time, then heading round to Kentucky for the Breeders' Cup yet again. So much to look forward to internationally over the next couple of weeks. We'll be bringing you all the news from Australia, from the United States, and of course, throughout Europe. Uh, I will be back in touch as soon as I get uh, to Melbourne. Uh, with the help of uh, Tom and Charlotte, we'll keep you abreast of everything over the next couple of weeks. So do stay tuned. Thanks so much for your company. If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast. I will see you next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.